Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a lot of stuff to talk today. We are going to talk about the first day of impeachment hearings, which were yesterday. We're going to catch up a little on the Roger Stone trial, which has kind of been a big thing, but like so much else is going on. It's had a hard time uh, breaking through. Then we're going to catch up with some campaign stuff. Uh, Before we jump into that, let me just tell you quickly that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you and sponsored by, and all sorts of other good stuff, uh, actually, like driven by. I'm sitting here. <laughs> I'm drinking like Grady's cold fueled, brew ice coffee. Fueled by, exactly. Yeah, it's like totally legit. You know, it's this isn't just like, um, you know, give me some copy. Who who are these people sending us money? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, all right. So, do you love to save a buck by skipping the coffee shop? God, I'm, I'm getting old. I have to kind of like you know adjust my my, my <laughs> bifocals here. Uh, do you love to save a buck by skipping the coffee shop? Are you a do-it-yourselfer or a brew-it-yourselfer? So is Grady's Cold Brew. You asked and they delivered. Brew it yourself with Grady's New Orleans-style coarse ground coffee blend. Designed to work in any cold or hot coffee maker, one bag makes 24 servings of Grady's Cold Brew exactly the way you want it. Order online and receive 16 ounces of their famous famous blend of 100% Arabica beans and French chicory in a resealable pouch for long-lasting freshness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Or you can order Grady's on Amazon.com for next day delivery. And remember, if you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com, enter promo code TPM. All right. So we have that uh, out of the way. You know, it's funny. I'm always, I'm always a little feel, feel a little funny about the glasses thing because I was like, I got like fairly far along before I even needed glasses. Mm. I only got my first glasses when I was like 30. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I thought I had great eyesight. <laughs> things change. So yeah. what, are, what are we talking about? So obviously yesterday was a big day in the impeachment inquiry, and we're excited to be joined by Tierney Sneed, an investigative reporter in our D.C. Bureau. Tierney, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys up in New York? Good. It's been too long since we've had you on the pod, yeah. so I'm, we're happy to have you uh, here. Yeah. Is, is it super cold down there? Uh, it's freezing cold. Okay, yeah, it's um, pretty cold But it was also here. very cold in the, in the hearing room yesterday. So. That's right. Just to be in a, in a warm office feels like a treat today. <laughs> yeah, cool, we saw some cool. pictures of you in a parka and scarf, so... <laughs> yeah, everyone was jealous of my parka, but I never go to a, a hearing on the Hill without my parka because this is sort of a regular problem, but this yesterday was extraordinarily cold in there. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, Tierney, can you start by just telling us, like, set the scene for us a little bit? I mean, I'm curious, yeah, like, the room temperature was freezing, but also what was... You know, what was it like in there on this kind of momentous day of the impeachment probe? What were things that maybe we couldn't see on TV or, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I I think the mood in the room might have felt a little different than what you all were seeing on TV. Um, From my perspective as someone who's covered a lot of high profile hearings, particularly in the the Trump era, it was actually a a lot mellower in the room than what I was expecting. for one, they held it. Uh, they held the hearing in the Ways and Means uh, Committee hearing room, which is um, huge. It's a very large room, um, a lot larger than 
some of the other hearings, um, the rooms that, the, that some of the other big hearings have been in. So it just felt like there was more space, more breathing room. Also, um, there is, you know, several rows of seats in the audience reserved for members of Congress. And at any given time, I would say only, you know, a handful of those are full. So, you know, of the entire audience, the most it ever felt was two thirds full. Um, so, yeah, it, it just felt it didn't have the sort of frenetic, sort of frantic energy in the room that I think we've seen in some of these other hearings. Um which was interesting because I think also, you know, with, with the exception of few, a few members, even, you know, some of the, the Republican members who had the most, you know, the, the most sort of crazy conspiracy theories, a lot of them still kind of kept their their temperature sort of down as they were sort of putting this forward again with a few exceptions that, you know, I, if you compare it to something like the Peter Strzok hearing where there was a lot of yelling and a lot of um heated moments, this felt at least, you know, comparatively speaking, a little bit more calm than what, you know, maybe you would have expected knowing, you know, the interests of the Republican Party to defend Trump here. Now, what do, why do you think that was? What, what's your sense why why that was? Um, I mean, I have a couple different theories, uh, one of which is that this is the Intel Committee, um, which, you know, obviously its reputation has taken a serious hit in, in recent years, but historically has been a more bipartisan, more serious committee, um, one that, you know, is a, a lot of times dealing with issues that there aren't this sort of partisan breakdown. And because of that, you have a lot less um, less prevalence of political hacks going on to that committee. It's not like judiciary or oversight where you do kind of see your most flashy partisan members. Um, so I think part of that could be just the member makeup, um, just, a, you know, and, and we saw that Jim Jordan made a point to join this committee right before the hearing. So again, I would say he's sort of the exception, but I think part of that was just by a product of the committee that was doing this hearing. Um, I think a part of it was the fact that these depositions have already come out. So even though I think it's very important that the public was seeing all of this stuff on television, because I don't think an, an average American has time to read 400 page depositions um, the way that we did. But I think there was also this sort of feeling that, you know, everyone in the room between the witnesses, the the members and the press kind of knew what the big reveals were going to be. So it wasn't like the Michael Cohen hearing where it was bombshell after bombshell, at least for us, with the with the exception of a few little things. And in that one episode that Taylor sort of outlined, you know, everything we'd already heard before. So Again, just going to the general mood, you know, there was less sort of shock and surprise um, when you compare to other hearings where you don't have the advantage of a, a public deposition that you've already seen. Do you have any sense that that the the Republicans on the committee at some level, at least some of them don't quite have their heart in it or kind of know that it's a, you know, these are two pretty senior guys you know, don't have really any obvious partisan coloration in in their backgrounds. Uh, they, <clears throat> so I don't think it's, it wouldn't be right to say they, they are resistant to coming forward, but, you know, weren't kind of jumping over obstacles to, to, to come forward. Obviously, that hasn't prevented a lot of the same people from, from, a lot of antics other times, 
But is that is that just wishful thinking on my part, or did, I mean, feel I like wouldn't that, say yeah. they, they weren't ready to be put their their heart in it. I mean, there does seem to be that there was you know some coordination. You saw some overlap in sort of the defenses that we saw. You know, I don't know if you could catch us on camera, but there was a little bit of you know shuffling papers from time to time and sort of coordinating. You know, these parliamentary motions they were putting forward to gunk up the work. So I do think there there was they were you know making a concerted effort here. I think if anything, a lot of these members don't normally play the role of attack dog the way that, right. you know, Judiciary Committee Republicans or Oversight Republicans typically do. So this is just not, right. you know, if you, if you look at, you know, who are the who are the Republicans who are, you know, doing the press conferences after the private depositions, you know, with one or two exceptions, it wasn't typically the House Intel members. That's just not the role that those members normally play. So even if they were kind of, you know, going through the defenses and and still kind of, you know, going through some, some of these sort of crazy theories, they just don't have, the, they're just not used to having to do it with flair, you know, because right, that's just not right. the role they play. That and makes sense. And since half the battle of these public depositions really are the optics and, you know, the spin, what's your sense from being on the Hill of, you know, who thought who won, you know, how do the Democrats and Republicans think that their sides did? I mean, I think it was what you would have expect that that both sides, um, you know, came out saying, you know, this was devastating for the president or, you know, Mark Meadows was, you know, literally the second after the hearing ended, you know, everyone was still seated, seated at their desk. He came over to my press table and said, oh, I think this was a great day for the president. So I, I don't <laughs> think I would I would put too much. Um, emphasis on the spin because it's sort of, you know, with maybe one or two hearings that I've ever covered, it's always that way. Um, I think, you know, what was sort of ironic was a major, a major spin talking point you heard, you know, while the hearing was happening from Republicans was, oh, this is so boring. This is so boring. Well, it, you know, if, if, it felt, if it felt boring, it's because all the deposition transcripts had already come out. So nothing was, you know, very few things were really new. But, you know, they were the ones who were calling for these depositions to be released. So it wasn't, you know, it was a little rich of them to complain that it was so boring when a part of the reason it might have felt boring is if you'd read these deposition transcripts, you already knew the bulk of the testimony. I'm curious to get everyone's thoughts on this. I mean, some of the mainstream media coverage of it uh, was interesting. I think Reuters, Jeff Mason had something that always like sort of mixed results, right? NBC. Uh, Jonathan Allen, reporter, said it lacked like the pizzazz to capture the the world's attention, and that kind of pizzazz is sort of taken off as a little meme on Twitter. I mean, I don't know. Just give me your sense of, give me your reaction to that. Just anyone in the in the room, basically. But yeah, I mean, I I just I just always myself, and I don't I don't want to criticize other reporters, and you know I I haven't read all those stories, so I don't know you know whether that they were just sort of opining or if they actually, you know, talk to people. But I just, you know, I just don't think as a reporter, you ever want to take for granted that, you know, this isn't for you. Like I said, this isn't for the people who read the 400 page deposition already and knew what they were getting. This is for the, the people who were only going to see maybe a few clips on their nightly news. And, you know, unless there's like focus groups happening right now, I would just be very reticent to sort of assume that I know how those things hit toward for people who weren't following this as closely as I've been following. Well, I think that's an interesting point and something that I've been trying to kind of discern because, you know, I've had a few friends ask me, like, you know, give me the summary. What happened? And, you know, I could tell them about the episode you mentioned, Tierney, that Taylor told us about that call for the first time. But besides that, you know, 
this public stage, especially given that we've already had the pu- or the private hearings, is just. I mean, optics is a huge part of it. And so it's kind of like if I was a person who wasn't eyeballs deep in this, what would I go away from? What would I go away from this with? And part of it is, you know, so we had um, Nunes and this Republican staff attorney kind of tossing out conspiracy theory, little allusions left, right and side, which is the point that when I was trying to, like, cobble together a piece on that, even I was like, I'm not fully sure what they're talking yeah. about here. I mean, I think that was sort of, you know, if you wanted to do some sort of analysis of, you know, how is this hitting? I, I saw a few pieces that were like, you know, could an average American even follow these sort of conspiracy theories if they weren't, you know, knee deep in, um, you know, John Solomon articles and 4chan and Facebook and all that, you know? So, you know, that I feel like it kind of cuts both ways if you want to do that analysis. Like maybe it was boring, but also maybe it was really confusing if you're not really well steeped in what sort of counter allegations Republicans are pushing here. Right, which is the tricky thing because, you know, just put in simple terms, it's Democrats' job to lay this out clearly. So Republicans are going to do everything they can to muddy it up and make it confusing and, you know, make you not really sure who's who, what's connected, you know, is CrowdStrike connected to this kind of thing. So It reminds me, Kate, too, of the of the piece you just wrote this morning with Pelosi saying the word bribery over and over again mm-hmm. and Schiff kind of used that language and moving away from quid pro quo, which is not something people say in everyday conversation by any means. And even on the right, I think there's been some uh, kind of, you know, mocking of that term, like, oh, I don't even know what language that is kind of thing. So I don't right. know, maybe it's all a piece of just trying to make the whole thing kind of digestible for people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I think part of that strategy is like, I think it's become pretty clear that Republicans can't dispute sort of the facts here. I mean, they, they're certainly trying to confuse the facts, but they can't dispute the basic fact pattern. So then it becomes a question of, well, is this an impeachable offense and why bribery is, you know, a, you know, something that's easy for Democrats to want to grab onto is that bribery is literally in the Constitution. So, you know, as long as you can convince the American people that this was bribery and part of that is just saying bribery, bribery, bribery all over again. Um, you know, you kind of get closer to that goal of convincing them that this is an impeachable offense. I really, I mean, my takeaway on that part of it was that the Republicans were were largely, if not exclusively, playing to a Fox News audience. Um, because as you said, a lot of these references, it's it's not even just like, oh, that's really outlandish. Like, like what are you, like literally, what are you talking about? And there's a lot of that that if you're not, you know, sort of fluent in Ukraine collusion, Dungeons and Dragons characters and spells, right? You have no idea what they're talking about. And I was struck by, I mean, one of the things that was so internal to that was, I think this was Nunes, but Nunes, I think Nunes did it, Castor did it, and maybe um, Jordan did it, where he basically, I mean, talk about reacting to, to... a, you know, reacting to a text, so to speak, very differently, that there were these exchanges where the Republican would say something like, you know, do you know that on this date, John Solomon reported that Ukraine tried to have 
Donald Trump assassinate, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. not that literally, but, you know, some some kind of wild thing. And you have these kind of diplomats like, dude, no, I've <laughs> never heard of that. And just or really that. am not. And but then they would say like, ah, yes, <laughs> indeed, you have not. Right. And yet you are ambassador to Ukraine. Explain that to me. Right. And or is like, it, is Hunter Biden qualified to serve on a gas board or whatever? Yeah. Well, th- those those things were kind of like were, were to me. I'm sort of like, yeah, like why? Why would. You know, why should this person, you know, know something said someone something that someone wrote on like Breitbart six months ago? But clearly, to them, it's almost as it's almost as if you ask like, "Do you know where Kiev is?" And like, right. no, you know. So th- th- there's definitely a lot of sort of like playing to Fox News, but there's also a level of like they're kind of so internal to that to that dialogue it is one of those classic kind of things like wow we're in two different kind of information worlds here and like Mm -hmm. i mean how can we communicate and what you just said i think segues into kind of i think what tyranny was getting at a little bit before which is jim jordan's huge thing was saying all those things and being like aha you don't know anything and yet you're the democrat star witness and you've never even spoken to trump and it's like because Trump won't let anyone well, speak was, who's spoken to him. That was another, I'm curious how this is going to develop, because some people actually did start mentioning this yesterday, that sort of like half the Republican argument was like, ha, there's no one here who's even talked to Trump. Which, like, yeah, <laughs> no kidding, because like you won't, let, you won't let them talk to them, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, you know. I think, you know, if we're talking about sort of pizzazz and standout moments, you know, one of the standout moments, at least, that you saw, you know, people on Twitter and people who've been following us pretty quickly, um, closely sort of jump on was Peter Welch's sort of retort of, mm-hmm. well, you know, <laughs> if we want to talk to the person who started this all, President Trump is welcome to take this seat. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think... I think, I mean, the, the good news for Democrats is that we have, you know, several more of these hearings. So I think they can sort of hone their counterattacks, um, kind of knowing now what, what are going to be the major Republican arguments here. Tierney, before we move on, I want to, or before we move on to kind of what to expect next week, speaking of, of more hearings coming up, can you tell us what in your mind was kind of the biggest difference between the closed door depositions of which the transcripts have been released and and what we saw in public yesterday? I mean, obviously, there's just a lot more in the in the depositions that aren't in the hearing. So I, I was just keeping a close ear of what what, you know, Democrats were choosing to emphasize off of that sort of deposition script um, and sort of what the strategy was there and what, you know, how you sort of create a timeline and, and what are the episodes that you're focusing in on. I mean, you read these depositions and there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there for us as reporters who are trying to figure out new ways to, you know, new angles or new strings to pull or new sources. But, you know, for Democrats, you know, their their slogan in this is, you know, keep it simple, stupid, and they want to keep it to, you know, here are the specific conversations, events, moments on the timelines. And, you know, I think, you know, for instance, one thing they really, you know, hammered home were some of these texts that Bill Taylor sent that were, you know, very early on giant red flags for, you know, what a big deal the scandal was of him just calling it crazy that uh, that this, you know, aid for meeting for investigations sort of quid pro quo has been hatched and them just sort of getting him to say, 
why is that crazy? You know, what, where did you hear about this and why did it make you think it was crazy? So yeah, just kind of seeing how they took this, you know, 300, 400 pages of witness testimony and try to distill it down to a couple key moments to present to the public was, was interesting. One of the things that jumped out to me was that Steve Castor's questioning was, He's the Republican counsel, right? Right. Was was yeah. much, I mean, better maybe. Isn't right. it, it was much more detailed and factual and interesting in the depositions than anything yesterday. And it makes sense at a certain level. He's playing to the cameras. But there, there, were, there were certainly times in the depositions when Castor didn't, wasn't pushing the conspiracy theories, but you could tell he was sort of prodding facts that were relevant to them. But there were certainly times in the depositions where I lost track of who was this the Democratic, you know, is this the Democratic Council or the Republican Council? Like yeah. it wasn't it was it was it was it was pretty solid. So that seemed different to me. Now here's here's a question I have for you, Tierney. What is the chatter among your colleagues, you know, most of whom are going to be steeped like you in the sort of the intricacies of this of this scandal? What's the chatter about what people are expecting from Gordon Sunland? Because at least as I'm reading it, there are now facts out there that will need like another round of de-lying even after that letter. So you can only do that so many times. Um, and at a certain point, you need to plead the fifth and ask for his immunity. So what are people expecting when he's it's next week that he's next speaks? Wednesday? OK, next Wednesday. Yeah, he's Wednesday. I mean, you know, it is fascinating because, you know, it just kind of goes to show that there being sort of a different set of objectives and sort of a public proceeding versus, you know, private inter- interviews where you might be trying to, you know, set perjury traps or lock people into testimony. I think it's really interesting that he's scheduled on sort of the later side. He's not until Wednesday. So we're going to have, you know, three more days of testimony, several witnesses. You know, by then, I think a lot of stuff's going to be fully aired out that he's going to sort of know that (laughs) there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, it's going to be his word against, you know, four or five people. It's not even his word against one other person's word. And, you know, it just seems to me that you know, maybe the interest here is to make sure that people aren't confused by having him go sort of right off the bat and play things down, but rather, you know, they've already heard from five or six witnesses about his awareness here. So it makes him harder to to pretend like he wasn't aware of all of this now that all these sort of new episodes have been publicly aired. I mean, that's just sort of my guess of why why they've chosen to put him sort of towards the end, um, even though that decreases the likelihood that he'll just sort of stumble into a lie by, you know, not knowing what else other people have said about him. Well, I would I would assume the plan is that his lawyers will make clear to him by the time he comes up, like, look, there's seven other people who've who've said under oath that you're lying. So you really need to you you need to have something that we can stand behind. And again, I mean, he could it's a little hard to see. You, you can only refresh so many times, right? It's it, it yeah. you can sort of one say, Oh, kind of like, yeah, now I'm kind of, it's all kind of coming back to me, but. Uh, and I both. think he's in a particularly perilous position because I think we've seen hints that Republicans want to throw him under the bus. So it's not even like he's going to have Republicans yeah, who will yeah. sort of run defense on him and sort of try to, you know, defend him for maybe, you know, not being as forthright as he should have been, you know, everyone's going to have the knives out for him. And, um, you know, it's funny just to think that he paid a million dollars to get himself into this mess. Um, 
But, no, it, yeah, it makes I perfect sense because he's the point of contact with Trump on on most of these points. So, so if he if he doesn't like change his story, the Republicans can just say, yeah, this one guy, you know, going around telling everybody what Trump told him, and clearly he was lying, and this is all his all his scheme, like good going, dude, right? I mean, so yeah, I just don't get what his um, I. I it, it, I'm at a loss what what the plan is for what they're going to have him say when he comes in. I mean, it would not sup- honestly would not surprise me if he just sort of telegraphs like, because I don't I think the congressional rules are once someone says they're going to plead the fifth, you're actually not allowed to bring them in. Like, the, I think there's a, a rule about this that you're not supposed to bring someone in just to force them to plead the fifth on camera. Um, I mean, who knows? We'll 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 see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. We'll obviously be looking forward to this next week. Maybe next we can, uh, anything else you want to talk about the hearings, or should we move on to the, the Stone trial? You know, I'm eager to ask you about the Stone trial. I mean, it, it, Tierney, this is like I, like everybody. I think there's, you know, there's so much else going on. I've only kind of slightly been able to follow. But if I'm not mistaken, basically what's come out of the Stone trials is Stone was definitely in touch with WikiLeaks. It doesn't seem like there was any intermediary. And there's very strong, if not absolute, evidence that he was, you know, keeping Trump up to date through the whole thing, which is a massive thing, if that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 complicated because, you know, what's happening here that makes it, you know, would have been really fascinating if, you know, for us to go all in on if there wasn't a million other things is that, you know, for for Stone's attorneys, there's sort of a, a conflict of interest between what Stone's attorneys need to argue in court to sort of defend him in this case versus what his interests were in, you know, staying loyal to Trump and protecting Trump and, you know, and setting up maybe a pardon. So there's there's been a lot of, you know, his attorneys have to say things in court that completely undermined, um, you know, what what would have been in Trump's interest, you know, six months ago going into the Mueller, you know, the Mueller report being released of what we knew. And and what what it you know what prosecutors were able I think pretty effectively to show is that you know the campaign definitely believed that Roger Stone was you know had a, a direct line into WikiLeaks that Roger Stone was you know talking to multiple people you know trying to to find ways in and a big a big person in that was Jerome Corsi and was communicating back to the campaign, you know, certain things that it's sort of unthinkable to, to understand of how he would have known if he wasn't getting some sort of feedback from those intermediaries and that, you know, he went to the House and lied about it all because, and he said, you know, it was clear that he, he in his text to, you know, the witnesses that he's accused of, you know, witness tampers, tampering that he needed to protect Trump and not be forthright about what he was doing on WikiLeaks. Um, so, yeah, in a world that, you know, in an alternate universe that impeachment wasn't happening and this was the main story, it would be a, it would have been, you know, or if, if this had been happening back in February before we had the Mueller report and a lot was still unknown, it would have been a, a pretty explosive, pretty explosive two weeks. Are, are those tell me about those three premises that I just laid out, though, that that um, uh, well, that he would that he that he was in touch with WikiLeaks that no inter- yeah it doesn't seem like there's really an intermediary and that he was kind of keeping the campaign up 
to date as he found things is from a skeptical perspective because obviously you put witnesses on they say different things which of those things do you think is was as close to confirmed as things can be confirmed in trial testimony yeah i think i think your first point that he was in touch with wikileaks is is pretty off is a little off just because I mean, at least just judging on the on the trial testimony is is because what they're what what prosecutors are sort of proving or trying to prove is that he was in touch with WikiLeaks through Jerome Corsi. And what he lied about to House Intel is that he told them that he was in touch with WikiLeaks through Randy Credico. So at least from what the evidence has been put forward. There was an intermediary, but he just lied about that intermediary. And what's, you know, sort of frustrating is that Jerome Corsi is sort of the big hole in this, because if you recall, they were close to having a plea deal with him. There was this, you know, indictment that was already drafted that he then leaked to the press and and, 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 uh, bailed on the plea deal. And he was not a witness in this. So there's still this unanswered question of, you know, Okay, prosecutors, you've proved for me that Jerome Corsi was the intermediary. What 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 did that back channel actually look like? Um, so that is a, is I think you know more of a, a vague issue. Um, but you know beyond that, you know when they're showing sort of what was then communicated to the campaign, it is it is pretty close to being almost a hundred percent clear that that he had advanced notice of various things that were happening, you know, what sort of leaks to expect so that what sort of messaging should that, should that, uh, campaign do, you know, to expect leaks coming every week. That was in one of his emails to the campaign, which is end up coming true. Things like that, that, that make it hard to believe that he wasn't at least getting some sort of, um, substance from this back channel. Um, and yeah, and, and the other sort of damning thing was that Trump was was part of this this loop, it appears. I mean, this is a little little less clear because, you know, you're just looking at call records and you just have the testimony of Rick Gates saying what he thinks he overheard in conversations. But they, the prosecutors were able to show that at all these key moments, Roger Stone was on the phone with Trump right afterwards and that, you know, Trump was saying things that made it sound like he was hearing from Roger Stone key things about what WikiLeaks was doing. Does that cover all the premises? I sort of forgot what one of the no, premises no, no, that, were. No, that, that, that absolutely does. And I, I, I guess, I mean, I, I'm sort of left, and I think other people are left, with this question of like, wow, this kind of would have been good to cover this stuff from the Mueller report. And not just kind of the details, because there are a lot of redactions in the Stone parts of the report, so maybe some of this stuff was there. But... You know, from a devil's advocate point of view, well, just because they were talking with WikiLeaks didn't mean that they 100% knew that the ultimate source of these emails was a Russian intelligence operation. Yeah, and this is the problem is when you're viewing this in a sort of criminal statute lens, it kind of it kind of changes the calculus of what is the newsworthy information you're putting in a report. Right. I guess, well, at some level, it goes back to this question of what was the Mueller investigation actually about? Was it just finding, you know, violations of statute crimes or was it figuring out what what on earth happened in the 2016 election? And at some level, we know that it was really the former. And that's kind of to me, at least, that's always been the problem. But there was certainly some sense in which it was also the latter, which what happened? And this is pretty central a pretty i mean 
I wouldn't say it's the central thing, but it's pretty close to the central thing that we were trying to figure out. Were, were, mm-hmm. were these people in touch? And it seems like they were. And like, why are we finding this out now, like six months later, in a in a in a trial after the the um, after the special counsel's office closed down? And even just, you know, hypothetically, say Roger Stone gets convicted, I don't know what kind of uh, a sentence he's potentially looking at. But, and I also, it's hard for me to imagine just with all his bravado, Roger Stone, you know, saying, okay, fine, I'm sorry, and I'm going to tell the truth now. But what if he does? <laughs> then what? What if he's got some, yeah. you know, some kind of additional, uh, what does he give it to Bill Barr? I mean, it's, it's just weird. And it kind of, it, it's, for me at least, it's part of my ongoing, the ongoing deterioration of my confidence in, in the, in the Mueller investigation. So I don't know if, if other people feel the same way, but it's weird. All right. Well, maybe that's a good place to leave it. And um, Tierney, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. All right. Before we move on, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Okay. So before we go, uh, this weekend, it's another election day in, in the USK, your favorite, favorite <laughs> My time. My favorite day of the yeah. year. So... Uh, Last week or a couple weeks ago, we had the obviously the surprise upset in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Democrat Andy Bashir besting, um, I'm totally blanking on his name, Matt, Matt Bevin. Bevin. Yep, yep. Um, seems like pretty much everyone has accepted the results of that race at this point. Well, it's always a question of if Bevin has or not. But yeah, McConnell, McConnell at least and is signaled. It's, uh, Stivers, it's pretty much over. who's the Senate Majority Leader, have both you know gone on the record saying if the recanvas doesn't magically flip those 5,000 votes, then there's a new governor in Kentucky. Right. I, I thought McConnell's, that quote he had that I saw, was just like classic McConnell of... of these understated, like slipping a shiv <laughs> under someone's ribs, where he said something like, "Oh, I guess it didn't quite turn out for me." Right, but he had a little good short. run. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, tell us what to be on the lookout for this weekend. What's going on next? Yeah, so this is another race that Trump has really fully gone all in for the Republican here, Eddie Raspone, uh, who's challenging John Bell Edwards. And most of the polls are, they're quite tight, but they give Edwards a bit of an edge. He's managed to kind of ride the tidal wave of being a Democrat in a red state rather well. You know, he's conservative on guns. He's conservative on abortion. So he's kind of walked the line, um, hasn't really talked about Trump all that much, except in somewhat of, you know, kind of lukewarm terms, been like he can get along with him, Um, you know, try not to alienate um, a lot of the moderate Democrats that are in that state. Um, and just so I, just so we're clear, I'm not mm-hmm. sure we said this yet at the outset, it's the governor's race in Louisiana. Right, it's, about, it's right? the governor's runoff because Edwards didn't top 50%, um, which in Louisiana means they go to a, a runoff, which they are now, and which actually uh, Trump took great credit for him not topping that 50% because he was in the state shortly before that. Uh, giving stumping, giving um, a rally for Rispone, which he did again last week. And then he went to the Alabama LSU game on Saturday. Um, you know, Trump, as we know, is not a huge sports fan except when it benefits him or, well, golf, I guess he right. likes. But um, and then he's coming back. A, he's, a very sedentary sport. Exactly. Right. Um, but he's back in the Sorry, state again. <laughs> yeah, they're all not listening anymore. Yeah. But uh, he's coming back into the state again tonight, actually, to give another campaign rally. Um, kind of a closing closing argument sort a, of thing. A last hurrah. And then, you know, Mike Pence is calling into some radio stations tomorrow. So really, I mean, full court press by Trump and co 
to kind of get the Republican over the top here. And you can tell because Trump never masks his emotions all that well that he is still very upset about Bevin's loss. And, you know, spin it as he might, there's no way to get rid of those side-by-side pictures of Trump stumping on the stage and a day later, a Republican incumbent governor losing in Kentucky. Right. That is just a hard pill to well, swallow. It's interesting how a lot of Trump's allies in the immediate aftermath of, the, of that election were saying basically, like, oh, yeah, Trump kind of dragged him over the finish line, or if not for Trump, it would have been would have been even worse. I mean, it's sort of like, obviously, trying to make lemonade out of lemons, but um, right. I don't know. I expect a similar thing will happen on Saturday if uh, if the Democrat does win. Right. I mean, in a little bit in Kentucky, you did have some other factors that Bevin was extremely unpopular within his own party. Um, and you just, you don't have quite the same dynamic here. And this is a bigger, you know, uphill, of course, there's always the incumbency edge. And Edwards, like I said, is popular. But, um, you know, there's no getting away that it is, it's Louisiana. Did so. he do, they did Medicaid expansion under Bell Edwards, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's interesting. That's, that's turned out to be a key thing in a lot of red and purple states. Yeah, and Kentucky was the same case with the sort of Kynac, other, other right. this year, right? Right, Before right. Biden. But I think there's other... There's other states where this has happened, and there's even some Republican governors who who've done it now. Mm-hmm. Like, like now that the sort of the the sort of polarization of Obamacare has become muted, and Medicaid expansion, at least in the public mind or in the sort of the partisan mind, has been has become a little unchained from Obamacare. That it's you know it it's kind of a game. I mean, literally it's a gimme. It's, it's a bunch of free money for the state and, and, um, and people like having health care. Well, yeah, <laughs> people like having health care and, 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 uh, the whole, you know, it, 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 people, Republicans like to portray Medicaid as sort of like, you know, kind of like healthcare welfare, sort of like, but it's a big swath of, of the population. And, and this is one of the reasons why, uh, uh, Governor Bashir, the the father, not the mm-hmm. the, the new guy's the son, um, was very popular as governor. Kind of in in the in the thick of the anti Obamacare, you know, frenzy seven or eight years ago, he pushed it through in uh, in his state, and they called it Kinect. They kind of rebranded it, um, which obviously made it made it easier. I, I'm just curious because that that is. It's Medicaid expansion has ended up being something that kind of evades a lot of the partisan mm-hmm. stuff in these states. It's not like, you know, someone's going to like you're going to get a Democrat come in in Louisiana and say, like, all right, man, we're open up 20 abortion clinics <laughs> in my first day in office. Right. right. I mean, they, these things are, 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 are kind of uh, locked in. But Medicaid expansion is something that that. Uh, you know, transcends a lot of that partisan divide. Right. I think that's true. And just, you know, one more thing I want to add is that we are starting to get some early vote statistics back because early voting has been open for two or three weeks before um, to, uh, Saturday's election day. And, you know, what we've ha- come out so far is that Democrats encompassed 46 percent of the early voters as opposed to 44 percent in the primaries. You had the African-American turnout go up, I think, five or six points primary to election. And of course, you know, that's never a guarantee because you never know how much of that is cannibalizing your election day vote. So we'll have to wait and see. But it does seem like there's at least a surge of enthusiasm at the very least for this runoff that people didn't necessarily bring into the primary. And that was kind of the case, too, on Election Day this year, right, in Virginia and different places that these kind of off-year elections where there's not 
you know, there's not a big presidential ticket or other things to really drive up enthusiasm or momentum, that there was actually pretty strong turnout regardless, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. What, what is, what's, what's response story? Is he just like a kind of like a generic Republican or is he like super right wing or what, what's his story? You know, I kind of just become aware of him since his campaign started and he's pulled the pretty common Republican thing of just fully modeling himself off the president okay. and most of his campaign ads hardly even feature him. They're just, you know, like I will be a, a foot right. soldier for Trump kind of deal. Right, right, right. Interesting. So. Interesting. All right. Well, something to watch this weekend. And um, and it's Saturday. Saturday. Like, yeah. yeah. How many how many states? Like, that's pretty uncommon. It's Very pretty uncommon. Weekend I mean, I know election. sometimes there are primary, like presidential primary uh elections on weekends, right? Like, yeah. isn't South Carolina sometimes on, like, a Saturday I night? I mean, look, like in that? many ways, it's it's far preferable. Oh, yeah. It's it a is lot easier to vote. That's it's what makes uncommon. me so surprised that it's in a red state that they have this Saturday election, because, you know, that tends to be a, a much more democratic stance to say, let's have the federal holiday for voting, because they want, you know, hourly voters to be, or hourly workers to be able to vote. Right, right. I'm curious. I, I suspect it's something that they've probably had for a really long time before... The, the sort of the politics of early voting and all, right. all, all these things kind of came into play. And also, like, I mean, not that there's anything about the French legal code or like Catholicism <laughs> that makes like Saturday voting, but there's a lot of things in, in Louisiana right. that are just that are just distinct from from stuff in, in, in the rest of the country. So I'd be curious. Yeah. I, I, I suspect it's something that goes, I mean, even the jungle primary concept, right. which is sort of under different branding, uh, you know, they're kind of doing something similar in California mm-hmm. now. Uh, but they've had that for, I don't know how long, but like at least 20, 30 years, I think. And I suspect... 70 or 80 years. I suspect it's been a long time, but I would be curious to find yeah. out about that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, update our listeners next week. Yes. Yeah. So a lot to look forward to here. Yes. So remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can order it at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM, or you can order it at Amazon.com for next day delivery. All right. Thanks, y'all. See you Later. next week. Thanks, everyone.